Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rob. Um, I'm set on the PCC at church, and along with my wife, Jess, we lead a home group, and some of the 14 to 18s work here at church. Uh, before I begin this morning, um, shall we pray? Father, we ask for you to speak to us this morning through your word, that you know what is on our hearts, you know what we need to hear, and we just pray that you'll speak to that as we look at your word this morning. Amen. So, have you ever been somewhere where you feel like you shouldn't be? I mean, you know it's okay, you know you really should be there, it's okay, but something just doesn't feel right. Let me give you an example. Jess and I were flying back from visiting her parents in America a few years ago for Christmas, and we had a short connecting flight from Detroit where her family are to New York before we got the transatlantic flight home. Um, and we were just sort of settling into our super cheap seats right at the back, the ones where you know you're going to have to run to make your connecting flight. And all the flight attendants doing their last-minute checks, walking down the aisle, closing the overhead bins, doing all of that. And one of them was walking up and down the aisle with a clipboard, a list of names, and just sort of looking intently either side of the aisle at all the passengers in the seat. And when she got to us, she approached Jess, and she asked her if the two of us were traveling together, Jess said that yes, we were. Uh, she asked if we had any carry-on bags, and Jess said yes, we've, we've got some carry-on bags, and starting to get a little bit worried here. And then she says, oh, well, would you follow me, please? Really nervous now, getting up, walking down the aisle, feeling like we've said something wrong, we've done something wrong, we're going to be taken off the flight, we're going to miss our connection, I'm not going to get back in time for school starting in January, what's going on? And then we got to the front of the plane, we got to the first-class section. There were two empty seats. We were gestured into these two empty seats and asked if there's anything we'd like to drink before takeoff. It was one of those moments, those upgrades that you hear about but you never think will happen to you. Though it was only a short flight, I spent a lot of time thinking, hang on, why us? Why, why did they bring us from the back? Surely they meant to get that lady that was sat next to us. I mean, she was wearing a suit and everything. She really looked like she should be up here. I think she was even writing emails over the Christmas holidays. She deserves to be up here, not us. We should, we should still be back there in the cheap seats. And I think at times, we can feel that way when we're here, when we're in church, that we can hear this wonderful message of salvation. We can hear and we can praise God but we still look around and something in the back of our head says, no, we, we don't belong here. I mean, if the person sat next to me knew what I'd thought when that person cut me up on Tolworth Roundabout the other day, they'd, they'd definitely ask me to leave. No, this, this salvation, it's all, all well and good, but it can't be for me. Not for me, it's, it's for other people. But when we look at these chapters, at these stories this morning rather, we're going to see that actually it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter who we are. Salvation is for us. God's gift in Jesus is for us. So before we look at these two stories, though, I think it's important that we set the scene. Up until this point in Mark, Jesus has been in Galilee. And now we're not in Galilee anymore. He's up, it says here at the start of our, chat, start of our reading today that he's uh, in the vicinity of Tyre. And Tyre was a major Phoenician trading port on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, it's still there today in modern-day Lebanon. And it's quite a bit north of Galilee. 
in Galilee, Jesus has been mobbed wherever he goes. I mean, people have even been running on foot to get ahead of him so they can be waiting wherever he arrives so that they can hear him speak. He's among people that already know they've been chosen by God. While he's there, though, he's he challenged their understanding of what it means to be chosen by God. He's calmed storms. He's stamped his authority. He's healed many. He's cast out demons. But now, he's in a land where the ancient Greek gods were worshipped and the Jewish people looked down upon. The people around him here should want nothing to do with him and they should expect nothing from him in return. Yet their response to him, or at least the response of some of these people to him, mirrors quite a bit the people in Galilee. Think back to last week. Emmanuel spoke to us about the story of Jairus, one of the synagogue leaders in Galilee. This is somebody who would have been respected in society. He would have fulfilled all of his obligations to the law, but whose daughter was very ill. If you've got your Bible open with you, uh, please do flip back with me. Keep your finger in today's reading. We're going to come back to it. But back to Mark 5, chapter tw- uh, verses 22 and 23. And it says this. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Now flip back to today's passage. So look at Mark 7, verses 25 and 26. And we're going to meet one of the characters here in Tyre and see if you can spot some of the similarities in here. It says, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. She was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive out the demon of her daughter. Here we have two very different people, but each of them pleading with Jesus for the lives of their children. And Jesus' response to these two different people in the same predicament is essentially the same, even though on the surface it appears to be a little bit different. In Mark 5, Jairus pleads his case and Jesus follows him to his house. But here in Tyre, he says this. Have a look at verse 27. He says, first, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And then we see the woman's response in verse 28. Yes, Lord, she replied. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I mean, this seems like quite an odd exchange. Over the years, theologians have interpreted it in a variety of different ways. But however we look at it, there is no escaping the conclusion that Jesus appears to be comparing this woman to a dog. So why this strange, but perhaps even insulting response? In the first half of chapter 7, in the verses leading up to our reading today, Jesus' teaching has implied that Jarius, uh, who we met back in chapter 5, despite all of his claims to purity under the law that he would have had uh, in order to have been a synagogue leader, well, he was actually no more blameless than this woman. 
Yet the implication of Jesus' response is that Jairus, one of God's chosen people, is a loved child provided for at the table. And this woman, a Gentile, a worshipper of pagan gods, merely a dog beneath it. But in this moment, Jesus is actually trying to teach his disciples an important lesson. And it's, it's very possible he was actually just using their current situation. We see at the beginning of our reading that after all they are in somebody's house. And it would not have been uncommon for the family's pet dogs to have been hoovering up the crumbs that were dropped during a meal. I mean, not much has changed in the last 2,000 years. Uh, if you're ever in my parents' house and you're eating, their dog Flo will be there watching, waiting, drooling. Uh, and, well, you certainly don't interrupt a meal to feed the dogs. I mean, we always, when we're at my parents, leave a scrap on the side of our plates for Flo. But she doesn't get to eat them until we've finished our meal. Or maybe he was just using common language at the time. The disciples, to whom this lesson was intended, would have grown up hearing those outside the Jewish world being referred to in such a way. But whatever is going on, it's really important to note that she doesn't challenge it. Yes, Lord, she says. But even the dogs eat when the children do. Even if it's just a crumb, even if it's just a single crumb, they still eat together. The disciples are only just beginning to work out who Jesus really is. And Jesus needs them to realize that what's coming is not just for them, not just for the people of Israel, but for all of God's fallen creation. The phrase, God's chosen people, will no longer just be reserved to the descendants of Abraham, but will be open to everyone. And here's the thing. She's not asking directly for that same birthright. She's not asking for a place at the children's table. She's just asking for the scraps. Her faith in the promise of what Jesus is bringing is so sure that she knows that all it takes is just a crumb for something amazing to happen. You see, Jesus' response to this woman appears different to his response to Jarius because she's in a very different place. Again, if we look back to our reading from last week, when Jesus stops on his way to Jairus' house as he cures the sick woman. And it seems too late that he's taken just that one moment too long and the little girl is dead. Jesus has to remind her, remind them that all it takes is faith. And this Syrian Phoenician woman doesn't need that reminder. She already knows. Jesus says to her in verse 29, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Do you have that same faith in Jesus? Faith that even though there is nothing we could ever have done to deserve it, his death on the cross brings us salvation from sin. A promise of life in a new creation where suffering, pain and death are going to be forgotten. Do we have faith that all we need right now is just a crumb of that promise? and that all it takes is faith in him who will provide it. So 
how should we respond to this amazing truth? Look with me at the second story. This is starting on verse 31 in uh, chapter 7. Jesus has now returned to Galilee, and here he heals a deaf man who can hardly talk. Although Jesus doesn't lay his hands on him as requested, it says that they asked him to lay his hands on him, he does something more. He heals this deaf man who cannot speak in a way that he will understand. Jesus physically stops the man's ears to symbolize deafness. He touches the man's tongue to imitate his ability to, inability to speak. rather, And then he looks to his father in heaven and he sighs deeply. This is a physical representation of prayer that a deaf man would recognize and understand. Then speaking in the man's own language in Aramaic, he says, be opened. These are the first words that man will have heard. You see, Jesus didn't want this man to realize that this was merely a magic trick. That what happened was some form of, uh, some, some work of any earthly imagination. But this healing was an act of God in response to prayer. And when they see this, the crowd goes wild. I mean, they have good reason to. The last line from our reading, verse 36, is a reference to a prophecy back in Isaiah 35. And this is a prophecy that tells us that when salvation comes, among other signs, the ears of the deaf will be unstoppered and the mute speak. The crowd too, you see here, are starting to get an idea of who Jesus really is. But what does Jesus do? He asks them to keep it to themselves. But they're so overwhelmed by him, by his, uh, by his miracles, by who he is, that they can't keep it to themselves. And when we read this as well, we need to realize that this command that he gives them not to tell anyone, to keep it to themselves, is a command not to tell anyone just yet. You see, we live on the other side of that promise. We live after Jesus has commanded his disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation, which we'll see at the end of Mark. Our response to Jesus should be one of unabashed joy. He has saved us, regardless of us. He has saved us no matter what we've done. He has come to save all creation. And once we've accepted that, we need to tell others. Back in lockdown number one, I decided it was time for me to try and get into shape. So I, I downloaded the Couch to 5K app um, and went off to my local park to go for a bit of a run. You can probably tell from looking at me, lockdowns two and three have not been quite as productive. Anyway, while I was running, I would uh, listen to worship songs. And one of the songs that I was listening to at the time was a song that we'd sung the previous year at Naturally Supernatural called You're Beautiful by Phil Wickham. Um, and it's got the lyrics, I see your face, you're beautiful. And so the good people of West Yule were treated to a red-faced, out-of-shape man storming around Horton Country Park, belting at them as they walked past, you're beautiful! And it, it took me a few moments, really, to realize how this might appear, completely out of context to those people I was running past. 
And at once my red face was one of embarrassment rather than an indictment of my own physical fitness. But then I started to think, maybe some of those people that I ran past needed to hear that. Maybe they even knew the song. Maybe they'd known God in the past but had turned away from him. We don't know how God works. But what we do know is that when we get filled with his spirit, when we let it overflow us, it can touch the people around us in ways that we never imagine. Telling others of Jesus, even accidentally, doesn't always mean directly telling people about Jesus, although there absolutely is a place for that. Sometimes evangelism can be simply just letting ourselves get so caught up in worship, recognizing the authority of Jesus that all, and all that he has done for us, that just like the people that we've read about today, we just can't keep it in. You see, there's nothing that we could ever do or that we could have ever done that will make us worthy to be in God's presence, to experience even a crumb of his kingdom. It took Jesus giving up his life on a cross and paying the penalty that we owe on our behalf. And wherever we're at in our lives, no matter how unworthy we feel or how deaf we have been to him in the past, Jesus will always meet us. All it takes is faith, like that of the Syrophoenician woman, that he will. All it takes is a crumb, and our hearts can overflow. And we're going to sing again in a moment. Um, so as Emma comes up to lead us, can I encourage you to reach out to him? Maybe you want to do that physically by holding out your hands, perhaps silently in your heart, or even falling on your knees, as we've seen the woman do in the passage today. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that although we deserve nothing from you, you have given us everything. That through your son, we have salvation and we can belong to your kingdom. Father, we ask that through your spirit, we might see glimpses of your kingdom here and now and that you would move our hearts, that we would share move our hearts to share that knowledge with others.